0: Well, amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you for that reminder. We'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And um, as you know, we are in the middle of our vision series. Last week we started it. Uh, We're we're going through the next five weeks together. And uh, last week we started with this idea of worship. We're kind of looking at What are some of the things at Riverview Baptist Church that we believe are necessary? If we're going to be the people that God calls us to be, if we're going to be the church that God calls us to be, what must we be focused on? What must we be about? And so we looked at worship last week and we talked about how that was receiving and then reflecting the glory of God, that we have to start with God's glory because the reality is if we're going to make disciples, if we're going to evangelize, if we're going to do The work that God has called us to do, if we do that for any other reason than the glory of God, we'll burn out. We'll get tired. We'll grow weary because those things are not easy. In fact, those things are beyond us. We are not able to do do those things without the presence and power of God. And so we need to be filled with His goodness and His greatness in our lives. But this week, I want us to look at kind of the next component, okay? If it's worship, and so we obviously we do that on Sunday mornings here at Riverview. If worship is, is where we begin, then what is next? What matters next? And the thing that I would submit to you is the idea of Christian fellowship, the idea of authentic Christian fellowship with other believers. And the main idea is simply this. We cannot be someone who lives out a Christ-centered identity and influence without first having Christ-centered community. We cannot be able to fully live those things out. We may be able to do that on some level, but if we're going to fully live out the idea of a Christ-centered identity and a Christ-centered influence in our lives, then we have to surround ourselves with Christ-centered community. And uh, I want us to look at a, a slide that I've had made for us, a graph that I think kind of shows us where we are um, this morning, And, and so here's the, the idea, hopefully you can identify where you are in this process. If you're coming and you're visiting and you're brand new, or maybe you've been here for years and years and years, our desire would be that each person would walk through these steps, uh, through this funnel, if you would, to help us become the people that God wants us to be. Now again, um, ultimately we have to rely on God, but we want to look at what can we do to partner, to plug into His power. And so love, we want to start with biblical worship Next, then, is this idea of fellowship, an authentic life together with others. And that would happen, we would believe, at 9.30 in the morning, on Sunday mornings, in our life groups. I'll be the first to tell you, they're not perfect, but I believe what happens in a life group is incredibly important. The things that can occur inside of a life group where we practice the one another's, we care for one another, we love one another, we serve one another. Those things are necessary in the life of a believer, and then next week, we'll, we'll talk about this idea of growing in Christ together, the idea of discipleship and training. But this week, I want us to focus on this idea of living life together. I used to run cross-country. Uh, believe it or not, that is true. I did do that. <laughs> That's, I didn't make that up. I could probably stand to start running again, I know. But uh, if I didn't hate it so bad, I would. Um, but, but I used to run cross-country in high school, and I would do different distances Uh, I think the longest distance I ran was about 15 miles, and the shortest, when we were practiced, would be about two and a half. And I noticed something. When I ran by myself, my times were just a little bit slower. My pace was just a little bit behind compared to when I would run with my peers, when I would run at practices with my teammates. When I had people around me, they would push me just a little bit faster, just a little bit further, because I didn't want to be the guy behind. I didn't want to be by myself in the back. And so I would run. And I would run in a race, and I would run even faster and even harder because I wanted to be in the pack. I wanted to be counted somewhere in the middle. And what I realized after kind of going through that process year after year after year was that I became a better runner simply because of the fact that I had a team. Just having a team with me made me a better runner. And here's the point. How we grow in Christ is greatly impacted by our willingness or our unwillingness to surround ourselves with brothers and sisters who love God and love each other. It's just that simple. You see, you can sit in your room and you can listen to, to guys preach sermons. You can download podcasts. Some of the, the, the most incredible information is available to us today through technology than has ever been available to us before. You can listen to those things. You can listen to, to um, podcasts on theology. You can become a storehouse of truth. You can do some incredible things on your own but you cannot become the Christian God desires that you be on your own. You see, you're made for community. God has designed you to serve, to give, to bear burdens, to laugh, to learn, to encourage, and to challenge others. And the simple truth is we cannot do that by ourselves. Kept in our own little way, in our own little place, we cannot be the people that God calls us to be. And so, Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, I believe, models very well for us what Christian fellowship should look like, the things that should happen inside of our life groups. And so I would ask you to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. we will be reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The Word of the Lord says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you now. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the truth and power of your word. God, we thank you that you use it to change lives, to pierce to the heart sinners who need you. God, to encourage and build up believers who may be struggling. And so God, as we come now, And as we hear your word preached, Father, we ask that we would have minds that are open hearts, that are ready to receive the truth that you would have for us this morning. God, we love you and we thank you for this time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I want us to notice, again, what Paul is doing for the Thessalonians. I believe that what he's doing models fellowship to us. Thessalonian church was a church that was new and growing. Paul had helped kind of plant that church, and now he's had to move on. Um, And Thessalonica was a city that sat kind of in the middle of a crossroads in Macedonia. And so it was kind of a a super highway kind of a place. And so people would come and go. It was a a big metropolitan center. Information would come and go. And uh, this church, in many ways, was thriving. Some great things were beginning to happen. But the simple truth is it wasn't a perfect church just like Riverview, just like any other church. It, it didn't have everything perfectly right. And so Paul writes a letter to them, reminding them of a few things. Number one, he reminds them that the day of the Lord is coming, that the day of the Lord is real. We see that in this passage. And that brings us to kind of the first big idea, I believe, um, and that's this, that each of us needs to be reminded to keep an eternal perspective in our lives as we walk Through life on this earth, each of us needs to be reminded of the fact that yes, God is good and tomorrow is likely, but it is not promised. God has not promised us tomorrow. You see, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher, but I am a Bible preacher. I've said that before. The day of the Lord and the wrath of God is coming for every single person that lives on this planet man, woman, and child. That's the truth, that's the reality. And to remind us of that this morning, I want us to see what Paul's doing in verses 1 through 4. He's referencing an idea, um, and I just want us to turn to Revelation chapter 19. I think this helps us kind of very clearly see what it is that Paul has in mind. Revelation chapter 19, go ahead and turn your Bibles there for just a moment. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 16 together. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, that's who we worship That's who Jesus is. Last week I asked the question, where is Jesus today? We were talking about the glory of God, and one of the things that is glorious about our great God is His ultimate power, His unquestioned authority. And so Jesus is sitting, and He is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. And so when Jesus returns, what we see is He returns on a white horse. A white horse in ancient times was a symbol of victory in battle. Roman emperors would ride back through the city streets and as they rode back, had they been victorious, they would return on a white horse to basically say, the day has been won. What's interesting is Jesus rides in on the white horse to do battle. He's already won. The battle's here. Jesus has already won it. When Jesus is coming back, it says there's a sword that's protruding from his mouth. I don't believe that's a physical sword. I believe that's an image of of very simply this. All Jesus is going to have to do when he returns is speak. That's how powerful he is. There will be none who oppose his word. You see, when Jesus tells us in the book of Matthew, as he's being tempted and tested, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All Jesus is going to have to do is just say the word, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he's the Lord, that he's the King of kings. This is how big and mighty and powerful he is, and this is what the day of the Lord is going to look like for every person. And so we see, and we need to be reminded of this simple truth. You see, that day, for some, will be a great day of wonderful redemption. It'll be a day of joy, it'll be a day of excitement. But for others, that day will be a day of fear, a day of wrath. The question is, which will you be? Where will you be found on that day? I don't know about you, but I want to be ready. I don't want to be caught asleep. I don't want to be slacking off. I don't, certainly don't want to be caught in some sort of sin or distracted or just living for myself. I want to be focused on Him so that when He returns, I'm ready. And that's one of the themes that Paul has here. When he talks about that the day of the Lord will return like a thief in the night, what he's saying is pay attention. Be ready. This could happen at any moment. This could happen any day, any time, any place, anywhere. And so here's what I believe Paul is modeling for us. You see it right here. He's reminding us. Pay attention. Be ready. Wake up. We need Christian community to help us, friends, be ready. We need Christian community to help us and to remind us. Because when we're going through our days, especially when we're just going through the day-to-day and we're in the grind of life Monday through Friday, it's easy to, for things to just feel like this is just the way it's always going to be. It's just going to always be this Monday through Friday cycle. Get a little, maybe a little rest on the weekend, hopefully. And then start over again. And then do the Monday through Friday cycle all over again. And what Paul is saying is, don't be lulled to sleep. Someday that cycle will be broken. And so I believe that Christian community can clearly help us in two ways. Two ways. I believe there's more than this. But there are at least two that are obvious. Firstly... I think Christian community can help us remain faithful. This is what Paul has in mind when he talks about not being sober and not being asleep, that we're children of light, and we'll get to that in a moment. But see, the very simple matter is this. When we come here and we sing songs and we proclaim the name of Jesus, it's very easy for us to be filled with joy and peace and and to experience some, some closeness with the Lord And then when we go out there on Monday morning, things start going wrong at 8 a.m., and there we are. And our lives do not at all really reflect what was happening in here as we were gathered together as the people of God. You see, our lives out there should be very consistent with who we are in here. And we need brothers and sisters in Christ to come around us and to help us, to remind us, hey, remain faithful Even if things don't go your way, remain faithful. Be faithful in your family, in your family life. Does your family see you live a life that looks like who you are on Sunday mornings here? Does the life you live, does the way you lead, does the way you love look like the way that you live here? We're called to be faithful. We need to be faithful in our speech. Does the way that I talk here reflect the way that I speak out there? If I'm speaking of God, if I'm unashamed of God here, am I unashamed of God out there? We need to be faithful in our jobs. We need to be faithful in all that we do. I believe that Christian community can help us remain faithful, but also Christian community can help us remain missional. One of the things that that is incredibly difficult, and I think going to grow more and more difficult as we see the culture progress the way that it's progressing, is to speak up about Jesus Christ. We see all over, all over the place, that there are people, especially in the public sphere, in politics, educators, places that are in the public eye, you see people that are actually beginning to be, in some ways, persecuted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. I remember not too long ago, I was um, reading the news and I I had something that kind of caught my eye on how a federal judge who was being appointed was being questioned And it was known that this federal judge was a a Catholic, that he was a man of faith. And the question was very simply this. The question that came forward was, Are you someone who's going to allow your faith to influence your judicial decisions? Are you someone who's going to allow what you believe to influence your decisions? That's a pretty obvious question, right? Yes, I'm a Christian, so yes, of course that would influence some of my judicial decisions. I would hope so. You see, and he became scrutinized for his answer. He said yes, and he was under scrutiny. He was under pressure to say, no, I won't do that. I'll basically be a hypocrite. I'll do one thing on Sunday or on Saturday, and I'll do something totally different while I'm on the bench. We're challenged every day by our culture to be quiet, to go silently into the night. But this is not what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus calls us to speak And here's the deal. If he is who the Bible says he is, if he is that king of glory that's going to return on the white horse, why wouldn't I speak? What do I have to be afraid of? What can man do to me? You see, we need to be reminded, as Paul is saying, look, this life is not the end game. This is not all there is. There is something much, much greater and much, much, much more serious than the things that we are so easily distracted by and chase after each and every day. And so we need other Christians to come into our lives to remind us to remain faithful and to remain missional. But not only can, I believe, other Christians remind us of the day of the Lord, I believe we also need to see this. We need other believers to correct us and urge us on. We need other believers to correct us and urge us on. Look at verses 5 through 8 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 with me. Paul says this, he says, "For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But so, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." Again, Pay attention to what Paul's doing here. He is providing correction and exhortation to his readers. He's providing a correction and exhortation to them. He's saying, again, be who God has called you to be. If God has called you and saved you out of darkness, why would you ever return? Don't do that. Life in the darkness is marked by stumbling around. It's marked by fearfulness. It's marked by an inability to see correctly. When I was a young boy, I used to have a hard time going to sleep at night. I I had a, a nightlight that I turned on in my room because I didn't want to be in the darkness. Although I knew my room was a safe place and mom and dad were right down the hall, I always wondered and worried that someone might slip in into my room in the darkness, unnoticed, unseen, unheard. And so I was fearful. And even now as an adult... There are moments that a similar fear can return in my life, and uh, before you laugh at me, I I would say it's probably likely that that happens for you as well at different points in times, but for me, there's times where um, I'm here at the church, and for whatever reason, it's late at night, and the building hasn't been locked up properly, and so guess who has to go and lock it up? This guy. And so as I start wandering through the hallways, I don't know if you've ever had the the privilege and the joy of locking up a church late at night, but... (laughs) The building moans and creaks and cracks, and there's doors everywhere. And so I'm walking through, and you can bet I'm kind of tiptoeing around a little bit, right? Why? Because I'm in the dark, and I can't see. I don't know who's out there. I don't know what awaits on the other side. This is a big building, and someone could hide. It could happen. You see, those who are in the light, though, can see clearly, and they're alert. They don't have to be afraid. They're people who have understanding of what's going on around them. They're people who are less likely to trip and fall and stumble because they understand what is happening. And we need to be people in our culture. We need to be people, if we are children of light, who are marked not by reactionary fear when, when political systems and leaders aren't, aren't leading the way we think they should. We don't need to be the people that are necessarily outside picketing. We need to understand this. We need to understand that our culture is sick and that the people that I disagree with are not my enemy. They're just spiritually ill. They need the Lord. And so what happens many times is we forget Paul's words that we don't war against flesh and blood. We war against the principalities, the forces of darkness. This is who is the true opposition. And so we are called to be people of light and to be people of understanding so that we are not marked by fear and we are not marked by anger. We should not revert to behaving, again, like we are in the darkness. The surest way, though, to do that, Paul gives us a hint in verses 7 and 8. I want to read that to you one more time. I just want us to see what he talks about in verses 7 and 8 together. He says, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's interesting. Paul's talking about the night, and he's talking about darkness, and then he goes into sleeping, and then he kind of seems to chase a rabbit almost and says, talks about this idea of drunkenness. Why? What's his point? Believe that he's saying this that yes, people that drink at night often get drunk in the physical darkness. But what he is alluding to is not just physical drunkenness and sleepiness. He's alluding to spiritual drunkenness and sleepiness. How do I know that? It's because you see in verse 8, he goes straight to talking about the spiritual armor of God. Right? He goes into talking about, be ready and put on the spiritual armor of God. What is spiritual drunkenness? I believe that it is in many ways, marked by many of the things that we would see in physical drunkenness. I'll give you some examples. One of the signs of spiritual drunkenness and physical drunkenness both is impaired judgment, right? Impaired judgment. And so there are times that I believe I experience this idea in my own life. Uh, Complete transparency for me, one of the hardest times for me to pray is early in the mornings. Early in the morning. I rise and I try to spend time with the Lord, but it's hard for me to focus early in the mornings. You know why? Because the day is calling. The list is long. There's much to be done. And it feels like being still and being in concerted prayer for 15 and 20 and 30 and 40 or or even an hour long is not a good use of my time. It feels that way. And what I need to recognize in those moments is that I'm drunk. My judgment is impaired. I'm not seeing rightly. Because here's what I'm saying I'm saying this that I don't have the time to spend 30 minutes of my day with the one who created time. I'm seeing wrong. I'm not seeing the world rightly. I need to be with him. Being with him is the the thing that's going to help me see what actually matters. Being with him is going to help me understand. How I need to order my day, how I can walk wisely through it. And so I need to recognize that I need to wake up, I need to reorient myself. I have impaired judgment. Another sign of spiritual drunkenness is lethargy and laziness. If you're a lazy Christian, maybe you're not focused on finding the glory of God in your life, maybe you're not interested in serving Him. It seems too hard. I don't want to spend time at my church. Maybe sleeping in on Sunday mornings would feel a little easier than coming and being a part of what's happening. These are some of the things that mark your Christian life. I would say to you, wake up, friend. You're drunk on the idea of comfort and ease of life. We're not here just to be comfortable. We're here to glorify Him. We're here to know Him. And sometimes we have to do some small things that may make us a little bit uncomfortable. Another one is anger and confusion. Another sign of drunkenness is anger and confusion. If rage is a part of your regular lifestyle, is if you go through life and you often find this to be the case that everyone else is wrong and you're always right, especially if it's other Christian brothers and sisters who love you and who know the truth and they're trying to speak truth into your life, but you're responding in anger and you're telling them that they're always wrong, I would say wake up, friend. You may be drunk. You may be drunk on the idea of pride and self-centeredness and my way and my things. And we see this in the culture over and over and over again. I've talked about this, how it just seems like more and more and more people are accelerating to being just walking around in, 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 ugh, excuse me, in an enraged lifestyle. Everyone is angry all the time. We're spiritually drunk. We need... To see correctly. And so that's what Paul calls us to. He's urging these Thessalonians to be still, to remember, and to focus on what matters, to focus on the truth. We need other believers to correct us and urge us on. You see, the truth is that we are in a daily battle. That's why Paul talks about the spiritual armor. He says the truth is when you wake up every day, you enter into a war. And you're either ready for it or you're not. Those are the two options. You're ready or you're not ready. And I encourage you to come back next week because next week we're going to talk about that in detail as we talk about discipleship. We'll talk about what it means to be in a spiritual battle and how to walk through that in a way that we're alert and ready for the day that lies ahead. But I want us to look at next this idea that we need other believers to encourage us and build us up in Christ. We need other believers to encourage us and build us up in Christ. Again, I want us to read these verses together. Let's look at these. It says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. It's a good affirmation that Paul gives. And again, pay attention to, to how he's modeling this for them. He's encouraging them in Christ. If you're here today and you're someone who marks in your Bible, I would encourage you to highlight verses 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians 5. We need to be reminded regularly that we are not meant for wrath, those of us that know Jesus Christ, but that we are meant for salvation, that God has saved us. We need First Thessalonians verses nine and 10. Hard times are guaranteed in this life. Hard times are coming for each of us, things that will shake us to our core. When the diagnosis comes, we need to be reminded. When our marriages break and struggle, we need to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us, when our careers crumble. We need to be reminded that we're not destined for wrath. But for salvation, when our children walk away, we need to be reminded and encouraged and built up in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says. He says, listen, remember, you're not meant for wrath. And so whatever comes, whatever you face, whatever you walk through, no, God is not out to get you, Christian. He's not trying to hold his thumb down on you because of some past sin or some past failure. He loves you, and his perfect son has settled your debt if you trust in him. It is, it is finished. When Jesus proclaimed it, it was done. And so the things that we walk through, the difficulties that we face, are not meant to harm us. They're meant to mold us and to shape us into the image of his son. How do you know that? Again, Paul's writing this. Paul also wrote that he had a thorn in the flesh. And he asked God to take it away, not once, not twice, twice. But three times. And the Lord told him, My grace is sufficient for you. He's saying to Paul, I love you. This is not my wrath. I will sustain you. I will carry you. But I'm not going to take it away. And so believer, we need these verses. I am not destined for wrath. I am destined for salvation. And my Jesus died for me. He loves me. And he knows me. And the beautiful thing is, he loves me anyway. Amen. And so we need other believers to come alongside us and remind us of that. We need other Christians to come and pray with us, to help us see that we're forgiven, to help us understand, maybe to see things in our lives and in our circumstances that we don't see. There's a famous coach named Jimmy Johnson, who coached the uh, greatest, one of the greatest teams that have ever played football. The Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys won consecutive uh, NFL championships, won the Super Bowl twice in 1992 and 1993 under his leadership. He also coached the Miami um, Hurricanes to a national college national championship. The man was a prolific coach, one of the best that's ever lived. And he had a set of coaching principles, things that he kind of said, these are the things that I'm going to live by. These are the things that I'm going to do and be as a coach. And one of his principles was this. You don't coach just the sport. You coach the whole person for success. I'm not just going to coach the player or the athlete. I'm going to coach the person. And so one of the ways that that manifested itself in his life as a coach was he would actually have players over to his house late at nights on Fridays and Saturdays, the nights that they were most likely to party, the nights that they were most likely to get into trouble. He would have them come over and spend time with him. He would cook nice big meals, and he would have them host at his home, and he would just do this. They would talk about anything except football. They'd talk about life. He'd help them set goals beyond just the game. He'd help them think about, hey, if you're not going to play in the pros, what are you going to be? What are you going to do? He would take a genuine interest in them as a person, as an individual. Here's what Jimmy Johnson realized. He realized his players needed a life group. He realized they need someone to come around them and care about them more than just their athletic performance. And believers, here's what I want to say to you today. You Need that in your life too. You may not be playing a sport but you can bet you need people that are going to come around you and care about you as a person care about you as a believer help you walk and set goals beyond just the physical beyond just the here and now we need people that will push us and encourage us and challenge us and help us and so the question that I want to ask you today is this, do you have that? Do you have that? Are you a part of a life group? Again, I'll be the first to admit it. Our life groups are not perfect, okay? But they're a lot better than nothing. They're a lot better than walking on your own. And so if you're here today and you haven't joined a life group, I would encourage you to do that, to find some authentic fellowship. But if you're here today and maybe you're a believer and you've been in a life group for some time and you feel like, man, this thing is just not working. It's just not where I want it to be or feel like my needs are being met. I would say this to you. Don't give up. Don't give up. Bear with one another. Love one another. And so here's what I would say. Be someone that models the kind of life group member that you wish your life group was. You go ahead and you start calling people in your group during the week. You ask how you can pray for the person sitting beside you. You find ways that you can encourage and build up the believers that you sit beside each each and every week. Be the life group member that you wish was sitting in your groups. And then secondly, this. If it's just not working, then don't give up. Don't stop coming. Go and try a new life group. I can guarantee you there's no life group leader that is in this room or teaches in this building that would say, I'd rather someone drop out than move to a different group. Most importantly, if you're here today and you've heard me talk about this idea that Jesus died so that we wouldn't suffer wrath. You've heard me talk about this idea that He died for our salvation, for our forgiveness of sins, and you've never experienced that in your life. I would encourage you: don't wait. Come and turn to Jesus. Find that He is the one who is faithful and true, just as we read in Romans, or excuse me, in Revelation, that He is faithful and true. That He is faithful to forgive sin. That he is faithful to save to the uttermost any who will turn and call on his name and ask them, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Make me your child. Help me to know how to walk and follow you. And follow you. This is what he will do for you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you.